Hello and welcome to another episode of Open Studio. I'm your host, Martina Flor, and in this show, I have honest conversations with artists, designers, and creatives to uncover their story and the specific tactics they use to build a successful career around their skills and the work they love doing. In this podcast, I have interviewed dozens of accomplished artists and creatives to basically answer one valuable question. How did they get there where they are? Now, while we prepare for all the greatness that is coming on season three, I'm releasing this special recap episode, which features some of the best moments of season two in one place. So you can always dig deeper and go listen to one of these episodes. For the full list of guests featured today, see the episode description right below where you press play in your podcast app. Or as usual, you can head to martinaflor.com slash podcast and find all the details there. Please enjoy. Episode 34, Matteo Bologna, Fake It Until You Make It, The Bliss of Ignorance, What Makes a Bad Partner, and Staying Small to Maximize Profit. So you did, you started, you know, that was your first touch point in the working world as a creative, like uh, doing illustrations, right? So what were the following steps? Because you run right now a, a successful branding agency, but I bet there were minor steps that you did before getting to that point where you decided to start an agency. So what were the, you know, the experiences in design or art that made you say like, hey, this is this is my thing. This is something that I can imagine myself doing for a long time. Yeah, um, I think when people look at other people's life or people that they consider successful, they think, wow, wow, they did, they made, they made it. Mm. And uh, I don't know if I really made it. I think it's more like someone made you do it, something made you do it. There's mm. a lot of things that, uh, a lot of decision in my life that I just had to make because something was presented to me. Mm. And uh, I don't think I really arrived where I am by making decisions. And I'm sure I made a lot of decisions, but it's not mm -hmm. like a big decision that helps to change something in a way that is drastic. Though I think maybe the biggest decision, if I have to look at my past, maybe I made two decisions that were mm -hmm. key. The first one was to buy a, a Mac because I was starting, it, it, I bought it in a moment where I was uh, transitioning from illustrations to graphic design. I didn't know much about graphic design. I started buying graphic design annuals at a bookstore, that all annuals that were coming from United States. This was before the internet. So mm -hmm. is, it was before people in Italy were aware of was was happening in the rest of the world. By looking at design annuals, actually, it was kind of like having a very slow internet connection because mm. by opening a design annual in 1885, you were looking at stuff that was finished, to, that has been finished to produce probably in 1883 and then sent mm -hmm. to the um, annual uh, 
the award company, uh, award um, institution makes these uh, books like the Art Directors Club or the Type Directors Club. And then they would print it. It would take one year to be printed and then they would reach Italy like three years ago after. So by the time the idea happened to the time that it reached my young mind of excited designer or aspiring designer, it took really probably three years. And uh, so I started being in love with this graphic design thing and I tried to do it in the traditional way with ink and rulers and French curves and I really sucked at that. <laughs> My mechanicals were terrible, uh, they were all dirty, the smudges of ink everywhere. And then I started looking for, I, it was the moment where you could hear that there was this thing called desktop publishing. Mm -hmm. And so I bought a computer, which actually I didn't buy a computer. I leased a computer because it was costing, I think I paid the equivalent of like $700 a month for a computer. Like What? That's a bunch of money, actually. Computer and a printer. It was crazy, uh, crazy expensive. And, uh, and so I was paying for my computer with the money that I was making with my illustration job. Hmm. So you, you were actually breaking even. <laughs> yes. And uh, thanks to my mother, who was uh, very nice <laughs> and still had me as her roommate in the apartment where I had... I was sleeping, I was fed, and I actually was using one of the rooms as my office because we had this big apartment and uh, one, one room was my office. So I had office, uh, sleeping quarters, and food. <laughs> and so this was uh, uh, the first big decision, buying a computer and then just because I had a computer, because the bar in Italy for uh, graphic design was very low, for product design was very high, mm -hmm. but graphic design, nobody... There were, like, bad teachers, bad... Uh, it, it was really, really horrible, the graphic design mm -hmm. world at the time. And um, automatically, because I had a computer, because the quality was bad in Italy, I could be could say to people, hey, I'm a graphic designer. And they would be like, ah, he's a graphic designer. Yeah, he has a computer, of course. Mm -hmm. So I faked my um, profession. I pretended to be someone that I actually didn't. I wasn't because I really sucked at graphic design. <laughs> so I, what I was doing, I would copy the stuff that I was, was seeing in these mm -hmm. annuals. And... Little by little, I became slightly better. Of course, I had holes, terrible holes in, in my knowledge about graphic design because everything was learned by making things. And I made mm -hmm. huge mistakes. Like, I designed a brochure for Apple Computer when I was like 26 and I felt like the coolest guy in the world. <laughs> and uh, for a trade show... And uh, the guy from Apple called me after the trade show was finished a couple of months later and said, hey, Matteo, 
we need more brochures. Uh, can you tell the printer to, can, you or, can we order more? And I said, yes, I was so proud of myself. And then the guy before hanging up says, but Matteo, can you make sure that this time page five comes after page four? <laughs> and I was like, okay, okay, I'll make sure that this happens. Thank you very much. Bye. And I was like, fuck, I'm a, such an idiot. I didn't even know how to prove uh, before going on press. It, I was... A total ignorant. And I want to ask you, what were the first challenges that you faced when you, um, when you moved to the U.S., um, considering that you were an Italian, not speaking the language, and um, yeah, you were a graphic designer, which probably opened a lot of, um, of doors for you or actually made you you know, open the doors of a certain community for you. Uh, but what were the challenges for you when you first came to the U.S.? I, I think there were a lot of challenges. Uh, now I'm thinking about it, so I'm starting to laugh a little bit because what I was coming from Milan, which is a very, it was a very small world, for, especially for the graphic, in the graphic design world where you could pick up a phone, call someone in the studio and talk to the principal. And probably actually the principal would pick up the phone. You didn't even have to go through uh, um, receptionists. And I would, uh, I remember that I would call studios like Mil Milton Glaser, calling Milton Glaser, hello, may I speak with M Milton? And they would be like, who's speaking? And I am Matteo Bologna. I want to speak with Milton, please. And they would, of course, be very nice and try to tell me to fuck off in a very nice way. <laughs> and, and actually, there was this thing that was uh, very fun, funny for me to think about it right now. There was, there was this thing that was called the drop-off day. Mm -hmm. and, I, and they would tell me, our drop-off day is Monday at, uh, in the afternoon. And I would be like, oh, thank you very much. I, would, I remember hanging up and then calling them back and say, excuse me, what is drop-off? Because I had no idea that there was this practice where all the designers who wanted to work for certain studios or magazines or agencies, they had to drop off their portfolio on Monday afternoon after two o'clock at the reception and you would pick it up two or three days later or the day after, after the art director in that place would look at the portfolios so every day, every week, these studios had the portfolio day where they would see portfolios from candidates mm -hmm. and uh, go through the portfolio and eventually hire or um, talk to these candidates to see if they were mm -hmm. good match for their firms. It was so weird. Definitely pre-internet. So you sort of brought 
the your like the kind of mindset or the way that the things work back home into this new experience in the US, right? So you were just operating as if you were in Milan. Yeah, absolutely. I, and as a matter of fact, I started to meet mostly with uh, designers who who also spoke Italian. So one of the first people that I met in uh, in uh, in New York was Luis Fili, who's who was mm -hmm. my design idol. She's mm -hmm. She still is my design idol, and uh, she was super nice. And for me, it was like a great experience. I started learning about studios by meeting people who would speak Italian. Mm -hmm. So uh, through Louise, I learned a lot of things about how to interview and doing things uh, in, in New York. So yes, the challenges was language, which of course brought me to meet a lot of people who were aware of the Italian world, the Italian language, and then um, work permit, actually, that was, I realized later that was after a few weeks that that was a challenge. Uh, thankfully, I was able to work... Uh, little detail, a little detail. Yeah, it was a little <laughs> detail. I didn't know you needed... I, because I went there, I was like, okay, let's just try and see what the fuck is going to happen. And uh, after a while, I was able to find uh, someone who, um, a company who wanted to hire me and sponsor me. Mm. And, and so I got a, a visa, which was great. Mm. And it's interesting because sometimes this, this attitude or this mindset of like, well, I'm just going there and see what, you know, how it turns out sometimes saves you from worrying about all of the things that you need to kneel before doing something because if you will have known that up front you may have not done it you know like you may have said like hey you know it's better here home like I can find my way in my city and sometimes not knowing the things that it involves doing something sometimes it's helpful ignorance was a bliss I have to say because I I was really cocky in a certain way. I thought I was cool and actually was probably a shit designer. And, uh, but this ignorance really helped me a lot mm. because I went to, I opened doors that I probably should not even have, I would have not considered to open if I knew what they were before. Fear mm. would have, uh, would have stopped me to do certain things. Episode 37 with Christina Amini. What makes a great book, the keys to collaborative work, getting a book published, and the future of content. Some publishers don't speak directly to authors. As you said, Chronicle Books does this, but many publishers like to speak with publishing agents, and they like to get proposals through them exclusively, and they don't get proposals from the general public. So. What are the next steps once you discover or you identify who may publish your book? What are the next steps for someone that is, you know, out of the blue, has a book idea and wants to make this happen? Great question. I, okay, so you have this great book idea. You are, you've gone, you've dug in, you've done some research, you've gone to bookstores, you've looked online, you've seen like, okay, there are there is a market for this book. I know there's an audience for it. Um, 
and yet there's nothing that's quite like this book that I want to pitch. Hmm. So then I would say that coming up with a really great proposal for your book is the next step. Hmm. Now, different publishers, you can look on their websites and look at what they want in a proposal. And I would really pay attention to their submission guide, guidelines. Hmm. Um, or if it's that you're looking for an agent, that you pay attention to their submission guidelines. Because it's kind of one of those things like, if you need to pay attention, you need to show that you've done your research, you need to show that you can, okay, I read all the things that they asked me to submit, I'm submitting all of those things, and you know, each publisher or each agent might be different. In general, some of the things that they will be looking for are a project synopsis, something about you, who are you as an author, what expertise do you have, what education connections, platform, what are the things that, you know, if I'm promoting your book, what were, would be the things that I would say? Um, I mean, one way I think a potential author too can think about it is that Basically, you want to give them as much material, like hand it to them on a silver platter. Give them as much great information about you and about your project as you can, because then it's a person like me who then has to pitch it to their group. So like, make it easy for me. Break it down into bullet points. Make it really crisp and clear. Um, don't send me 45 pages that I need to work through or just a website link. Oh, hey, check out my work. Because then you're asking me to do the work of, okay, okay, I'm, I'm clicking on this link and then I'm trying to figure out what, I'm, what am I even looking for. Um, that's not a book proposal. That's mm. just sharing your website link. Um, then, okay, so you've written what your uh, project is, who you are as an author, write down who the market is, you know, who do you see as the audience for this book, substantiate it with as much data as you can. Um, let's see here, if there's any marketing and publicity hooks that you have or contacts, connections that you have, places that you think would feature it. Um, and then competition, this is really important. Publishers are always looking to what has been published and how has it done. So it's good to pull out, say maybe five to 10 projects, uh, books that are in the world that you consider your book to be similar to. You don't wanna, I mean, hopefully your book is not the same as another book that you're pitching, but it's like you ideally want there to show that there's a market for this kind of book that you're pitching, and yet you're offering something new to the conversation. Um, because, so as I was saying before, publishers, they are taking some risk on every project that they publish because they are uh, putting in the money for the author. They're putting in the, a whole team's time. They're paying for paper printing and binding. And so they wanna make sure that they, their investment in a project is gonna pay off. So they wanna make sure that 
that results in book sales. Like, okay, lots of people are going to buy this book or enough people are going to buy this book that it's going to offset the amount that we had to pay for it. Um, let's see, is there anything else to include? Um, I would just say, I mean, right now most submissions are digital because um, most people are working from home still. Um, you know, in some places, again, reading those submissions do only submit, accept paper submissions. Um, so it's really paying attention, I think, to what it is that the publisher or agents are looking for. And you mentioned a couple of times you touched on platform, which, you know, in a way, when you speak about doing the research and kind of understanding whether your book will sell or not, the platform you have may have a big impact because you may be creating a book that is extremely niche. But if you have a platform of, I don't know, 500,000 followers on social media and a subscribers list of, I don't know, 100,000, then the things look different, right? Even if you're creating a book that is very niche, you may have a lot of or a big audience to, to sell it to, right? So I want to ask you a little bit about this because um, I was having a conversation with uh, Malika Fav, which is a, uh, an illustrator, a pretty accomplished illustrator, and she has a big social media following. And she was mentioning that Nowadays, when she negotiates the terms with a publisher, she feels that she has, through that, she has, through having a big social media following, she has a lot of leverage in terms of negotiating the, the, the terms and the, the essentially the royalties because she is a big player um, or she brings this book into a bigger audience, right? So I want to, to ask you a little bit about how have contracts changed and how have negotiations changed in this current scenario where authors nowadays may come to you with a big social media following so the distribution is not mm -hmm. falling only on the side of the publisher but also on the side of the uh, author mm -hmm. So typically uh, publishing contracts work in that they are an advance against royalties. So the, uh, mm. the publisher gives the author, I'm just gonna use round numbers to make it simple. Say we give an author an advance of $10,000 for a book with royalties of 5% of retail and the, the book costs $20. So mm. what is 5% of $20 is $1 right? Did I get that right? And uh, so for each book, you're earning that much money. The author is earning yeah. that much money so that then after uh, a certain number are sold, they, they earn back their initial advance. Mm -hmm. um, and just to be clear though, the initial advance that an author receives, they never have to give that back. That is theirs for the keeping, mm -hmm. whether they earn it in royalties or not. However, you usually, both the author and the publisher are more interested in the author earning the entire royalty and so, because it means that then they've sold many more copies of the book. Mm. Um, so in terms of how that changes the contracts, now with social media platforms being a key piece of publicity and marketing, mm 
it often means that if someone has a big social media platform and if their book is targeting the thing that they're, they're known for in that social platform, um, that then they can negotiate a higher advance and higher royalties. Hmm. Why I made that point about the, um, the, the subject matter needs to line up with the thing that they're known for, because we've experienced too that not, it's not always the case that somebody who has a big social media platform, it doesn't necessarily mean it translates into every random hobby that they have. If they're known for design, then like their project is mostly going to sell to that design audience, you know, so basically giving the audience what they want. So that being said, with a bigger social media platform, it means, yeah, that they, like you were saying, that there is this room to negotiate. Um, and sometimes too, there's, I mean, there's many points in an author publisher contract. Another point that they might negotiate is, you know, the, how they sell their book. Maybe they sell the book on their website and they can get it at a deeper discount or, maybe they want a bigger number of free copies or, um, you know, there are many different things, um, that, uh, authors can negotiate for or agents can negotiate for on their behalf. Episode 48 with F dot, how to land mirror gigs, studying your business, like a scientist, embracing your signature style, channeling your client's audience and creating an online shop without inventory. What made you what made you go freelance? What made you like break away from that job and start your own business? What did you feel was missing in that um a specific container? I think I always wanted to work for myself mainly for the lifestyle that I want to lead. I want to be able to work when I want to work and not work when I don't want mm -hmm. to work and travel as much or as little as I want to. And that doesn't mean I'm traveling all the time, but I like the spontaneity. I, I feel like I'm living mm. when I get to go do something randomly for fun. That's impactful. That's meaningful. And it's just hard to do that when you have a big a corporate job because the company's goals come first and the, the schedule is just not flexible. So I always had that on the horizon as I want to get to there where I can pick my clients, I can pick my projects. And it's just slowly, slowly, slowly doing less of the work that I didn't want to do, but I had to do for money mm, yeah. and more and more of the work that I want to do until I was ready to leave that job. Um, just saving up that money. So I have a runway, of, you know, six months to a year of, of bills covered so I could leave. But it was always the goal. Um, actually, before I took that job, I was freelancing. My, my journey was like a job for a little while and then freelance for a little while and then a job for a little mm, while yeah. and then freelance. And then sometimes the jobs would last like two or three years and it would take up like a big chunk yeah. of my twenties. But it, it was always like, let's see how that, all those skills that I had and how can I bring that into my business? Um, mm. And the jobs kept getting better. And so it became harder and harder to say no to like some of the full-time jobs that I was getting offered and then also the freelance work. But those first few years were really hard like getting jobs from Craigslist, trying to find work any way I could really, like totally outside of my, uh, my main 
medium that I wanted to do. I was doing everything, like photography, video, whatever. Like, <laughs> yeah. So, so right after graphic, uh, so after finishing your uh, education in graphic design, you you started freelancing, or you 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 um, took a job somewhere. I had what they like to call here uh, permalance. <laughs> you know mm. that permalance. So it's like freelance. But it's permanent, but it's not permanent <laughs> because they can let they can let you go yeah, anytime. I, uh, so I had that for a little while at Viacom, at an MTV mm-hmm. owned company um, within Viacom. Then I quit that job a few months later, went to Europe for four months, and then came back and started freelancing. Mm. That was the journey. Yeah, but I've always I think I I took on okay. freelance work since 2010 as soon as I could get it. Yeah. And I was just doing it outside of classes and stuff. And that was really when my freelance work began, 2010. But then I made it officially a business in 2014. And what, what were, you know, how were those first months, you know, after you left that corporate job and you decided to really give a shot to having your own creative studio and growing a business? Um, what were those first months like? I think going to Europe, I had, I had an internship in Lithuania, totally mm-hmm. random, right? I got mm-hmm. it on Craigslist. I found an internship in Lithuania through Craigslist. That's actually a real story. <laughs> and ended up doing <laughs> it, you know, living there. And I think I needed something different. I've always craved that experience of like living in different places around the world, getting unique experiences, making connections, and then bringing that into the work. So that was really mm-hmm. important for me that while I'm young, get as many of these experiences as I can, because that's going to inform how different my style is or how different my, the way that I operate, or the way that I talk to people and build relationships. I really mm-hmm. resonated with certain people that I met over the years, but they weren't all in my city. They were around the world and I needed mm-hmm. those experiences. But when I got back, yeah, it was, it was a struggle to keep it going, like try to balance the setting up of the business, which is a lot of work, people forget, just to get it going mm-hmm. uh, legally and all the different considerations of how you do it in the United States, it, it, it's hard, it's overwhelming. And then starting to try and get clients, it, you know, it wasn't really working in the beginning. It was just bare, bare, just yeah. barely getting by, probably spending more money than I was making. But I, ha- I wanted it so bad that I would just keep showing up. And that was right when Instagram was starting. So I had a, an outlet where I was getting that instant feedback on, on my work and I could see it improving. So that was really helpful too. I don't know. It was it was very chaotic, but also really formative and and fun too. How were like? I wonder what were the first, you know, what were the first assignments where you started seeing results? Like thinking like, hey, I I can totally live from this. And also like, what were your, you know, those first tactics that you used that seemed to work in terms of getting client assignments i i while doing the research for this episode i was um i was watching a video of yours where you spoke i think you spoke about certain tact- tactics that you used to get um mural assignments right it, within brooklyn or within your city so you can take it any in any direction not specifically to, with mural uh, assignments but what are the things that you feel that you or you, you implemented in the very beginning that you feel worked very well in terms of getting assignments? I think through working at agencies at that time, I was mm. like, you know, full-time job, freelance, full-time job, freelance. And sometimes it was an agency and sometimes it was a brand. And 
when I was at the agencies, I learned that you have to show the client what you can do before you do it so that they know what you're capable of. So mock-ups became a really powerful way for me to show people what I could mm. do with, with murals or with products or packaging, whatever I wanted to make. And, and, and at that time, it was a lot of murals. So I would go walk around the city finding walls that I wanted to paint, just photograph the blank walls, and then use Photoshop or Procreate to mock up my murals. And then I would literally just walk into the business. I would show them what I made and see how they react. And I did that. 50 to 100 times until until people that. started saying yes. And I didn't always have a custom mock-up for them, but I had my work and I had a wall in mind. And, and sometimes it would take years for them to come back to me, but a lot of them ended up coming back. So the mock-up mm -hmm. was really powerful. And then what else? Um, oh, my, my first couple projects that I had that made me feel comfortable keeping moving on, on this path uh, were local restaurants. So first was a cafe. Mm -hmm. I did a, a chalk menu board and some artwork around the cafe. It was like coffee themed, so it was right up my alley. And I got to hand paint it and, and hand draw it, which was the first time someone really asked me to do that. All my previous freelance work was, was digital or, or yeah. logo design or whatever. Um, so this was my first time like hand lettering, hand painting for a client. And then the next project, that, that was, not very big budget. The next project I got was my first big project, big uh, budget project, like $10,000, first, first time getting that. Mm. And it was a restaurant branding, menu board, signage, everything. They wanted everything. And it took four months. So $10,000 for four months, you know, I learned that that's not adequate. Um, and I was very inexperienced at the time, but it was, it was, it was a great mm. first big client project. And I liked that it was local. There were both of those restaurants were within like four blocks of my apartment. So I could walk around and yeah. see people going in and interacting with the work and stuff. Yeah. Here are the bios of all the guests featured in this episode. You will find a full list of the episodes on the show notes so that you can go ahead and listen on your favorite podcast platform or watch them on martinaflor.com slash podcast. Matteo Bologna is, he is the founder of um, Muka Design, his multidisciplinary background in architecture, graphic design, illustration, and typography facilitated his early business successes and inspired the decision to create a New York-based branding and design agency. As a creative director, he oversees and inspires every project with energy, intellect, and a quick wit. Matteo is also the principal of the new Muka Design spin-off type foundry, Muka Typo, and is frequently asked to lecture about branding and typography around the world. You can find him on at Muka Design with double C, M-U-C-C-A Design on Instagram and online on mukadesign.com. Christina has a wide experience in publishing and she shares it all during this episode. She is the executive publishing director of art, food, and lifestyle publishing at renowned independent publisher, Chronica Books. She is a professional collaborator and creator, bringing new ideas to fruition every season, as well as overseeing the publishing of more than 120 books and gift products every year. Eric, also known as F. Dot, is a colorblind visual artist and community builder based in Brooklyn, New York. 
Since finishing design school in 2012, FDOT has cultivated an art practice and creative studio that spans across a variety of media. His specialties range from hand-painted murals to drawings on paper to animated trading cards, all tied together through his playful abstract style. He has created art for clients such as Nike, USA Skateboarding, Oakley, Chicago Cubs, Tops, and Adobe. So this is it. I hope you loved this episode. You can find me, the host of the show, on social networks at Martina Flor on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you have a question or comments, go to martinaflor.com slash podcast, where you can see previous episodes, find show notes, and send voice memos with your comments and questions. You can also watch these episodes on YouTube. Just go to martinaflor.com slash YouTube to find them. You can, of course, listen to all our episodes on your favorite podcast platform. If you loved this episode, subscribe to this podcast. And if you leave us a review, it will help others find us. Thank you all for listening and see you in the next episode of Martina Flores Open Studio. Bye-bye.